Welcome to the Unlocking Athletic Potential podcast with Ian and Johnny. Discussing our passions of sport, OCR, running, and fitness to help you perfect your craft. Hi there, and welcome to this week's episode of the Unlocking Athletic Potential podcast. Before we get started on this week's episode, we want to shout out our partners, Red Dot Running Company. They are the go-to store for all your running, trail, and sports nutrition needs in Singapore. Red Dot are passionate about sourcing the best brands worldwide. We are proud to be associated with a company we love and are also focused on helping athletes perfect their craft and unlock their athletic potential. Red Dot, thank you for partnering with us. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to this week's episode of the Unlocking Athletic Potential podcast, where we dive into the minds of athletes, coaches, and industry experts to try and find out the secrets to their success. For this week's episode, we have a really interesting topic, something that applies to everybody, and this is something that can really help you along the way. So our guest this week is a professor in sports and exercise psychology at Brunel University in the UK, and is one of the world-leading experts in the effects of music on exercise and sport. I'm Johnny Tu, and I'm joined by my co-host Ian Beef, who will tell us more. Yeah, thanks, Johnny. Just out of interest, do you use music in any shape or form for when you exercise, for when you go on your runs? Yeah, so I mean... Growing up, I used to listen to a lot of music when I go running, and since then, it has changed a little bit. I think one of my runs, it was during rain, I had my headphones on, and somehow I got shocked just with sweat and everything going on, and since then, I kind of told myself, let's not listen to music anymore when I go training. But within the recent years, of course, when I'm doing more and more mileage, I definitely have tuned into more, got back into music, got back into using it for my training. I do enjoy a lot of podcasts and listen to different variety of things, but from my experience, I know um, when I do my harder workouts, I try not to listen to too, too much music, but that has been my experience so far. Okay, cool. So yeah, in the sport and exercise setting, music is just so commonplace. You'll never go to a gym and there won't be music playing, or if you go into a sports event, it's kind of almost a key aspect now of the sports presentation program, or if you go to the park, it would be impossible not to see anybody wearing headphones listening to music. And a lot of people, I'm sure, choose music based on what they like rather than really researching in if it can have a positive or negative effect on their performance. But our guest today is definitely going to be able to dive deeper into this subject area. His bio is so extensive and so impressive. We could just spend an entire episode discussing his research and his achievements, but I'm going to pick out a few highlights. So he's the author of two textbooks, both with human kinetics, 12 book chapters, 100 peer-reviewed journal articles, and over 100 professional papers in sport and exercise psychology. He's made 120 conference presentations and given numerous invited presentations at national and international conferences, including 12 keynote lectures. His music research has been featured in newspapers around the world. We're talking The Times, The Telegraph, The Independent, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, just to name a few. In 2011 and 2016, he was the recipient of the Sportest Award for Sport and Exercise Sciences at the annual conference of the British Association of Sport and Exercise Sciences, also known as BASIS. He has acted as a consultant for a number of international and professional athletic bodies, including British athletics. And outside of all of this incredible research, From 2007 to 2011, he was the head coach of the Great Britain Students Athletics Team. And he's also managed the Brunel University London Athletics Team since the early 90s. And during this time, that team has won seven British University Championships. I know that because Brunel University was my university. And he was also my team manager for both Brunel and for GB Athletics. Now, in his spare time, he plays the piano, often performing in jazz and Latin duos and trios and as well as the bassist band at national and international conferences. This bio could go on and on and on, but it's time to introduce the man himself. We have none other than Professor Costas Karagiorgis on the pod. Costas, welcome. Enough of the bio, uh, and thank you for that for that very warm welcome. It's great to see you both, and uh, I'm really looking forward to speaking with you today about the power of music in sport and exercise. Absolutely. And Costas, while we've got you, I'm just going to say like a personal massive thank you. Before we came on air, we had a quick chat. And those times at Brunel University were so special to me. I would say as much as I love Spartan Race now, I think the happiest times for me as an athlete were competing for that Brunel University athletics team. That was largely down to your team management, your positive attitude and just, you know, the way you really did bring that team together everybody enjoyed competing for you for Brunel for GB students and uh, 
really appreciate that as well as attending your your fabulous psychology lectures as well it was always entertaining and so much learning those so massive thank you before we get started on that costas what is funny and is that one of my strongest recollections from your youth is that when we first met you were in a rather sullen and downtrodden state because <laughs> uh, you actually came to brunel wanting to play for the football team um, and you, you were not selected for the first team in your first yep. year and my office actually faced the uh the football pitch at the time. And I noticed that you had some pace. And just looking at you, I thought, I wonder if he's ever tried his hand at athletics. And I remember speaking to you and saying, well, Ian, you know, there's no need to be down and out and sad. <laughs> Why don't you try athletics? We have an athletics program here. And I have to say the rest is history because within two years, you'd broken the Scottish indoor record for 300 metres, which is quite a feat when you think about the calibre of sprinter that Scotland has had. And you were turning out and winning medals with clockwork regularity. So to see that improvement in you, not only as an athlete, but also in your academic endeavours, has been a long-lasting source of pleasure for me, And I just wanted to mention that. Oh, I really appreciate you saying that, Costas, as well. And as I say, um, you know, the feeling's mutual and uh, so many good times. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, so diving into it, let's talk through your journey as an athlete, musician, and lecturer. How has these passions merged together and led you to become a world expert on the application of music and exercise and sport? Well, many people say that there's a huge chasm, a gap between sport and music. But I've long argued that both are culturally pervasive both speak a universal language. Both are ludic, they're about play. But most importantly, both are all about emotions. And the relationship between sport and music happened very early in my life, actually during my early childhood. I grew up in a rather poor but colourful enclave of South London called Brixton. And by chance, where I grew up, our flat was located immediately above a second-hand record store and so every morning, rather than being awoken by the sweet sound of birdsong or the sun breaking gently through the net curtains, there would be this booming subwoofer from beneath. <laughs> and I would enjoy the sounds of Bob Marley or Desmond Decker. I'd wipe my sleepy eyes and go to the window and notice that people came within earshot of that music. It would put a lilt in their stride. It would change their physiognomy, their facial expression, put a smile on their face. And really that music functioned as the auditory backdrop for everything that took place in my neighborhood. Now, of course, growing up in South London during the 1970s, you had to be a fast runner or you got shot. <laughs> and so my, my teachers recognized some athletic talent in me, just as I recognized it in Ian when he was a student. Uh, and they sent me to the Crystal Palace National Sports Center because where I grew up was almost literally in the shadow of the Crystal Palace National Sports Center. And so my love for track and field stemmed from a young age. Concurrently, I was listening to a lot of music. I was a tortured soul when it came to music. I just, I couldn't <laughs> avoid it because it was going on at a loud amplitude throughout my waking hours. At school I managed, I was able to instinctively pick up certain instruments and, and play them without tuition. I, I had the music ingrained uh, in me. Um, and it wasn't really until I was at secondary school when uh, I studied music formally. And at the time, yeah, there were some great artists that inspired me like Lionel Richie, Billy Joel, Michael Jackson, and I would listen to their music and reproduce it. And of course, I did a lot of athletics at school. Maybe the highlight of that time was becoming Kent School's 100-meter champion. And all of that led me to read for a degree in sports sciences and music. And that's really where my association with Brunel University started. So I, I did a degree there. I then went to the United States. I didn't stay too far from New Orleans, actually, when I was in the States. I was in South Alabama. And, and so on most weekends... I would take a greyhound down to New Orleans and soak up the jazz on the French Quarter because uh, I've been a huge jazz fan since my late teens. In fact, um, I'm a little 
sad today because I heard last night that one of my great heroes, Chick Corea, yeah. passed away. And I've seen Chick perform several times, and he's been a, a great inspiration for me. But anyway, putting that to one side, when I was in the States, I began quite formal inquiry into the uh, relationship between sport and music. I went on to publish that work. And then my journey took me back to Brunel, where I read for a PhD with Professor Peter Terry and Professor Craig Sharp. Professor Peter Terry was somebody who made extensive use of music in the sporting realm. He is one of the most accomplished Olympic psychologists. And so there was opportunity there not only to study, but to apply the work that I was doing with various groups at a relatively young age. Uh, and Professor Craig Sharp is known as the founding father of exercise physiology in the United Kingdom. And as well as being an accomplished physiologist, I have to say that he was something of a Renaissance man. He had a great knowledge of literature, of history, and of music. I remember one story that Craig used to tell as a guitarist, uh, he, you know, he, would, he would practice avidly and he would go around the various underground stations in London and just pause to listen to the buskers that would typically play on the underground. And on one occasion, there was a, a guitarist who was trying a, a piece of bark on the guitar and, and Craig said, stop, stop, that's not quite right. And he took the guitar and actually showed, showed the busker <laughs> how to play it. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I had that formative experience with Professors uh, Terry and Sharp. Unfortunately, Professor Sharp is no longer with us. He died uh, a few years ago. But Professor Terry is still very much with us, and we've continued collaborating through the decades. Towards the end of the 90s, beginning of the uh, noughties, I got contacted by Nike in the States, uh, and that was one of the most uh, exciting engagements I had because they'd read my research and they wanted me to work with them on the launch of the portable sport audio. That was the first ergonomically designed MP3 player for the sports market. So I worked with them uh, on that project and it really served as a launch pad in terms of making my research accessible to the entire world. Uh, and from then, I had a number of uh, other engagements with major organizations and companies and brought in a number of research grants that have allowed me to study the effects of music on the human psyche and in sport and exercise specifically over a couple of decades. Do you want to hear a very interesting fact, Costas, which you may not know? Absolutely, I would. I was actually a model for Nike for that um, MP3 player. <laughs> no. Is that right? Yeah, I was, yeah I'll, send, I'll send you a um, copy of one of the adverts. Yeah. yeah. So we, we did an event at Nike Town, I remember. Were you involved in that? I wasn't, no. It did a, a photo shoot for Nike. It was with Paula Radcliffe, actually, in Monaco. Uh -huh. They used the photos. It was mainly for a new range of trainers and apparel. And they photoshopped some of those images and used them within the music campaign. So I didn't actually realize... I was going to feature in that and they added on all the gear externally afterwards. And it was actually another athlete, Scottish sprinter called Jonathan Parker, who saw the advertising up on like a billboard and then sent me a picture. And I was like, oh, wow. So that was how I found out. It's amazing how our paths have crossed. <laughs> I absolutely didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'll send you a photo after the podcast yeah so that's quite interesting and quite quite good to hear that so there were different times and different types of music that we could possibly use and as we've mentioned in the intro I think people listen to music really without too much intent without really too much knowing how this will affect their performance and I thought we could maybe start off by talking about how music pre-competition could benefit both recreational and elite athletes yeah, as you've mentioned, there are many applications of music. Most people know about pre-task applications where you use the music either for its sedative or stimulative qualities. You can, of course, use it in task while you're training or competing. But hopefully today we'll, we'll also talk a little bit about post-task applications mm -hmm. because yeah. uh, a whole swathe of research over the last decade has looked at music in respite and recuperative functions. And you probably know, gentlemen, that given 
just how pervasive training research has been and conditioning research. Much of the emphasis in recent years has been on recovery and understanding, understanding how recovery can aid athletes' development. And I think music has a role in that. But to yep. tackle the question directly in terms of pre-task music, one of the key things to note is that pre-task music can give you a sense of pulling your own strings, being the master of your own destiny, controlling the controllables. In sport, we often think that mood is this uncontrollable factor over which we have no control. But music is something that allows us to get back a sense of control, to have a sense of consistency and regularity. So it's a particularly potent stimulus in either stimulating us if we want to psych up or sedating us if we feel overanxious. One of the most inspirational athletes that I ever came across was the American 400-meter hurdler, Edwin Moses. Now, Ed had a 111 race winning streak between 1977 and 1987, wow. winning two Olympic gold medals along the way. And he was famed for his use of music. He was one of the first athletes actually to use the Sony Walkman, which was launched in Tokyo in the late 1970s. And I remember seeing Ed Moses at Crystal Palace because we had the, the Grand Prix come to Crystal Palace each summer. And he would just lie back before his race, visualize, block out all of the pre-race hullabaloo, sort of create, create his own listening bubble and just visualize the race ahead. That was part of his pre-event preparation. In fact, uh, I remember at the 1984 Olympics in LA, he was interviewed just after winning his second Olympic gold medal. And a reporter asked him if he was worried about all of the young up, upstarts who were coming through and could potentially take his crown. And what he said was quite profound. He said, the other guys are so far behind, I don't even know what they look like. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> so you can see how the music was part of his aura and how it created this bubble where only he mattered. Now, of course, music can also be used as a psych-up technique. One of the most famous exponents of using music for psych-up was the most decorated Olympian of all time, the American Michael Phelps. He was famed for a particularly rap-centric playlist. You know, I remember when he was in London for the 2012 Games, he was listening to a track by the American gangster rapper Lil Wayne <laughs> yeah. with the title, I'm Me. And yeah. that has the refrain, yes, I am the best, and no, I ain't positive, I'm definite, I know the game like I'm reffing it. Now, you can see within that lyric, there's a very positive affirmation that Phelps was able to cling onto and use as part of his competitive endeavors. Yeah, that's amazing. And Costas, one of the projects which I know you've been involved in was actually creating a track for 400 meter hurdles world champion, Di Green, where you actually pulled in his favorite artist. You collaborated together to actually compose a pre-race track specifically for Di. I'd love you to dive into that example and, and how you were involved in that. Yeah, early in um, 2012, the year of the London Olympics, I got a call from Di Green's management. I think he just had surgery and they wanted to give him a little Philip, a little pick-me-up. And of course, Di was a big music fan and they thought that by creating a bespoke piece of music that Di could use in the lead into competition and even use at the Olympic Games might be a way to give him a psychological boost. We actually got Di in at Brunel University I began by interviewing him to find out about his musical history. Similar to Michael Phelps, he had rather a, a rap-centric playlist. We actually went through his iPod, talked about what he and his family listened to as he was growing up, his favorite artists, MCs, DJs. Then we ran some tests in the lab to see how he responded to music and indeed what sort of energizing qualities, let's call them that, within music would help in 
engendering the constellation of emotions that he associated with peak performance in the hotbed of competition. So through discussion, we established that one of his favorite artists was the DJ producer Red Light. And thankfully, his management managed to get Red Light to collaborate with us. And I spent some time at the Red Bull Studios in London with Red Light to come up with a track specifically for Die Green. So we called the track Talk to the Drum. If any of your listeners want to have a little listen of the track, I think it's still available. Talk to the Drum by Red Light. And what was really interesting about the development of this track was that Dai was part of the creative process. So we actually brought him into the studio. He heard, heard a, a skeleton of the track and inputted in terms of sonic elements that he felt might benefit his performance. Dai actually used the track to, um, to break his PB for the 400 meter hurdles at a Grand Prix meeting en route to the Olympic Games. It wasn't to be a medal at those games. Yeah, there were some other factors that held him back. However, it was a little bit of a watershed moment. And I think it was a, an indication of the cutting edge relationship between music and sport in terms of looking deeply at an athlete's psyche and then creating an artistic work that was oriented precisely towards their optimal psychological state. Now, I've seen other people do it. Wycliffe Jean, for example, the American artist, came up with a whole album of tracks for the Williams sisters. I mean, you probably know that the Williams sisters are still going strong today. Yeah. Serena played in the Australian Open. Incredible longevity. And it's rare to see Serena when she is preparing for uh, a major tennis tournament not to be wearing headphones. Is there a time, Costas, where you could use music and it could actually completely derail your performance pre-competition? Yeah, there, there are times, Ian. There are certain athletes who, by their very nature, can attain an optimal level of arousal for competition without the use of anything like music. There are two, two athletes that I remember uh, in particular Paul Island and Jason Wing. They were both athletes (laughs) at Brunel University. And it's the late Paul Island. Paul was a very good friend of mine uh, and a great inspiration to me through university. And Jason Wing was a a multiple international, uh, a phenomenal track and field athlete, rugby league player, and bobslayer. And they would get incredibly hyped for competition. They, 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 They would never touch music. I remember... At one um, Southern League meeting, one of the other team managers approached their team manager and said, what are you doing having these two boxers competing for you? (laughs) I mean, these guys were really pumped and up for it. And so, you know, there are instances where you, you don't really need to use music because the natural course of events will lead to an optimal level of arousal. Just to fill in our listeners as well. Paul Ireland was obviously my coach. Jason Wing, I knew very, very well as well because he was Paul's best friend. So I would call him a, a co-coach on the sidelines, would often whisper advice in my ear. And obviously he went to the Olympics for bobsleigh and was, yeah, just phenomenal across a broad range of different sports, including long jump, bobsleigh and, and rugby as well. So two legends of Brunel for sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it's rare to find athletes as accomplished as them. Other instances where you are needing to take feedback from a coach, music can be quite obtrusive. You know, let's say you are a multi-eventer, a heptathlete or a, or a decathlete. It's often good to have a, a debrief or to have a, a conversation of a technical nature with your coach in between events. And so music can be a little bit of a block to communication in those instances. And during an event, I note that many race organizers, such as the race organizers of New York Marathon, strongly discourage the use of music because it's so intoxicating that athletes can just bump into each other. So at a basic level, um, music is is a distractor and we need to be mindful of that. So as well as having this propensity to psych up and to psych down, it can also be quite an intoxicating and distracting stimulus. You've given some fantastic examples there of 
individuals using music pre-task, pre-competition, pre-exercise. How about when it comes to teams? Because I can imagine that in some instances, if you get the if the song right, it could obviously bring harmony within a group. But there could be other instances where maybe a particular team member takes over a changing room or an environment and, and a travel up on a bus and that music's not going to be to everybody's taste. Yeah, I remember a certain young man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can't really know, I can see where this is already with, his, already. with his oversized headphones and a penchant for Craig David. <laughs> who thought that the whole athletics team was into Craig David um, and the lyrics of Seven Days <laughs> back in about 2000. <laughs> I'm yeah. actually looking at him right now. <laughs> Indeed, it absolutely is the case that, you know, sometimes uh, people's musical choices can, can preeminate. If you take a, a multinational, multi-ethnic team like Chelsea right here in West London, it's very difficult to find one piece of music that will suit every player. It's rare that with music you can get this sort of one-size-fits-all. It does happen from time to time. Let me give you three quick examples. They're all at a national level. I remember vividly the uh, 1996 Euros when England were vying to win their first major soccer championship since the World Cup of 1966. And the anthem for that championship was Badil and Skinner's Three Lions. Yep. It's coming home. It's coming. Football's coming home. And as England marched onto the pitch to play West Germany, you could hear 80,000 voices as one just chanting that piece of music at the top of their voices. It served as a means by which to unite the nation. It bridged the gap between a mere soccer tournament and a stage for the nation's hopes and dreams. It wasn't to be for England on that particular occasion. <laughs> but still, I think it's a great example of, of music uniting. But sometimes it, it doesn't happen in such a planned and orchestrated way. I remember that in 2006, the England cricket team were led by their charismatic captain, Andrew Freddie Flintoff, in a, a cricket match in Mumbai. And the team were using the track Ring of Fire by Johnny Cash. Do you know that old country yep. track? Yep. Um, I might need a bit of a rendition from either yourself or Johnny Costas. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure of the song. Well, that track became something of a staple before the England players went out onto the onto the pitch. It, you know, it would be blaring out in the changing room and they'd whip themselves up into a, a hand clapping, feet stomping frenzy. So yeah, it was about their about their psychological state going into the match. And similarly, the England rugby players at the World Cup in France in 2007 use Kenny Rogers, the gambler, to boost morale. An unusual choice, but it became uh, a staple part of the team's evening social gatherings and then part of their pre-match build-up. I remember England captain Martin Corrie said to the papers, given where we are as a team, the lyrics seem to have struck a, a chord with us. So, yeah, in, in soccer, in cricket... In rugby, music has been used and sometimes individual lyrics can be extracted and put to good use. Some amazing examples there, Costas, and uh, definitely gives our listeners some food for thought when they're choosing pre-task music. I think most of us, though, are familiar with using music during a task, whether that's for when we're maybe going running or when music is blaring in the background when we're actually competing. I know it's kind of only present in CrossFit, in other arenas when the sport and events actually being played. How important is it to carefully put together that playlist when you're actually using it for in competition? Well, many sports have actually banned the use of music in competition. So it, you know, it's maybe worth just mentioning that. Yep. But is, is that because of the danger or 
because maybe they feel it's got an effect in terms of actually it's too much of an enhancer of performance or a mixture? I mean, clearly it can have an ergogenic effect, but the, the main reasons are that it can be very distracting. So in mass participation events, people can bump into each other or you know come into contact with traffic. The other thing is, of course, that coaches can communicate with athletes via personal listening devices. So you know, that is another reason for which it's been banned, particularly in athletics arenas. So uh, to answer your question, it's important that if you're trying to optimize music for uh, a training task, that you think about the various peaks and troughs in physiological terms. So you want music to help you in building energy and then for the energy levels to come down during warm down and then for music to take you back towards homeostasis or a, a resting state where heart rate is, uh, is close to 70. At the very end of your workout, maybe by the time you get to 30 minutes uh, after the end. So think about that progression and rising and falling energy levels. But a lot of athletes will not just have a, a singular peak. Many will use interval type training. I know as a, as a sprinter, Ian, you often made use of interval training and it was a staple of your training regimen where yep. you maybe would go all out over 250 or 300 meters You'd have a period of recovery. Sometimes it was active recovery. And then you would repeat the interval. So uh, part of our research has been looking at those recovery periods in between intervals. And what we're finding is that you can actually use respite music, medium tempo music, to prevent that really rapid decline in your emotional state while you're recovering and prepare you mentally for the next interval. So this is a new scientifically tested type of music application called respite music wow. wherein you don't use the music during the interval but you use it during the recovery to optimize your mental state for the upcoming in interval so we've looked at a couple of types of respite music one is called respite passive and this is where you are static in recovery so it, it's a non-movement based recovery where you're just sitting or lying still and the other is respite active where you are moving during recovery so if you think of a a common training regimen uh, such as high intensity interval training hit which is particularly popular now you might be going super maximally for say 30 seconds but then you will have a period where you are just freewheeling and coasting at a very low intensity in an active recovery state. So it's during that active recovery that music can be particularly powerful. Given that, a lot of our research has shown that at very high intensities of training or exercise, music doesn't reduce perceived exertion, and it's particularly difficult to process the lyrical content. The lyrical content has a syntactic element wherein we have to process the meaning of lyrics. And because the messages that go from the afferent nervous system, from the working muscles and the organs to the central processor become overwhelming during high intensity training, it, it so becomes difficult to process a piece of music. But one really interesting thing, just to say again, with a slightly sort of scientific perspective, is that although music doesn't influence what we feel at high intensities, it can influence how we feel it. Music can color our interpretation of fatigue, and it seems to tap parts of the lower cortex, such as the amygdala and the cerebellum, that's the reptilian, the, the earliest form part of the brain, permeates these affective or emotion centers in the brain and can influence how we interpret fatigue and make even quite high intensity activity more pleasurable. Interesting, interesting. Costas, I know sometimes people like to use music that helps, say we're talking specifically now um, running, music that fits in with kind of the, the tempo of their actual cadence 
And I believe you know about a famous example that was used to break an indoor world record. Well, yeah, uh, one one of the most um, famous exponents of uh, synchronous music, which is what I think you're talking about, where yeah. you consciously time your uh, running rate to the rhythmical qualities of music, is the celebrated Ethiopian distance runner, Haile Gabra Selassie. I'm just going to go 20 years back because... Gabra Selassie's agent is none other than the famous Dutch middle distance runner, Joss Hermans. And in the okay. 70s, Joss Hermans got a world best for the greatest distance covered in one hour. And that was actually audio fueled. So he created a, a playlist for himself that he used to break that world best. And that proved an inspiration for Gabra Selassie years later wherein he would tap the power of music. Now, yeah. I, remember one, I remember one particular occasion at um, Birmingham's National Indoor Arena, a site of many of your athletic conquests, Ian, <laughs> in the past. Indeed. Where Haile Gabra Selassie had made rather an unusual request to race organizers. He asked for his favorite pop song, Scatman by Scatman John, to be played yeah. over the PA. <laughs> Shall I give our audience a little snippet of that just in case they don't know? Go ahead. I think that's enough. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, scatting is this uh, vocalization, this vocal improvisation that characterizes this particular track. So it, it really struck a chord with uh, Gabra Selassie. So the organizers were blaring it out over the PA. And Gabra Selassie stormed off from the gun, leaving his competitors trailing in his wake. The Ethiopian contingent in the crowd was sent into a frenzy. And Gabra Selassie broke Eamon Coughlin's world best by one and a half seconds, which, yeah. as you know, gentlemen, is a huge margin yeah. in track and field terms. Now, Gabra Selassie went on to tap the power of music in many similar efforts through the years. And when he came to Crystal Palace, I noticed that on occasion, he would even have an Ethiopian rhythm section at the side of the track, equipped with an electronic metronome that they would set to his desired pace, and they would accompany his race with a rhythm track. So I think... Uh, that is a great paragon, a great example of how you can tap the power of music to ergogenic or work-enhancing ends. Haile Gabra Selassie. I'd highly recommend it. That's I love that example. Costas, is, is there like anywhere people can go to find motivational playlists either pre-task or, or for during their exercise? Is there somewhere where you would recommend for people to kind of go to grab these motivational playlists? Sure. My research group, which is known as the Sound and Visions Innovations Group at Brunel, we've set up a, a Spotify account where we um, publish freely playlists for different types of applications. So pre-task, in-task for a wide variety of activities. Just a few days ago, we published uh, a playlist for post-exercise recuperation. About a week ago, we published a lengthy playlist for The Times that looks at a whole range of activities. And we came up for mini playlists for each type of activity, you know, such as a power walk, a fast run, warm down, and so on. A few weeks before that, we worked with The Conversation UK, and we came up with a playlist that has a classical music slant. So if any of your listeners have a particular penchant for classical music, they can find a whole classical music playlist on our Spotify account. So that is the Savvy Brunel account on Spotify. Your listeners are welcome to check that out and to freely use the playlists available on there. We will definitely add those to the, the show notes, Costas, for sure. That's awesome. It's something you've done with music, right? Uh, from the side on the side, like how do you quantify some of these performance enhancements just beside, besides like the uh, side where people will feel a certain way. Uh, what's some of the scientific side that you have done to quantify uh, some of these different types of music and the way it works? 
That's a really excellent question, Johnny. I'm glad you've asked it because any skeptic will say, well, it's just a subjective benefit. People feel a little, little bit better and so they think that they're performing better. So the raison d'etre of much of my early research was actually to show objectively whether indeed music did have a work enhancing or ergogenic effect. And when we look at this objectively, the synchronous application of music, so the type of application that um, Haile Gabra Selassie used, does have a clearly defined, a, a clearly measurable ergogenic effect. And for recreational athletes, this can be in the region of 10 to 15%. So I'm not talking about elite athletes now, but I'm talking about Joe and Josephine public who just like to keep fit. So there is a, a measurable benefit in terms of performance. But you asked me specifically about measurement. So we use measurements such as the amount of oxygen that you consume at intracellular level, mm -hmm. what we call oxygen uptake. This gives us an indication of aerobic efficiency when we use music versus not using it or when we use another type of auditory stimulus. And we know that when we use music synchronously, for example, there's around the six to seven percent increase in energy efficiency. So this increase in efficiency, of course, can account for some of the ergogenic benefits that we find. Another type of measure that we use is neuroimaging. And this comes in many different facets. We use EEG, electroencephalography, that measures electrical act activity in the brain. We use functional magnetic resonance imaging. Now we need to stay very, very still to do this. It uses a large scanner but it gives us great spatial resolution and it allows us to see what effect music has deep in the brain. Now, remember that this type of activity severely restricts us in the kind of physical activity that we can do. So we've done things like grip strength type protocols in a scanner because during that we can keep the head still. Another type of instrument that we've used is known as Functional Near Infrared Spectroscopy, or FNIRS for short. This is a new type of technology. With this one, we are able to use a range of exercise protocols, but it shows us how oxygen is processed in the brain. And one of the really interesting mechanisms that has emerged from this type of work is that the use of music seems to extend the oxygenation curve in the brain. Because when we get deoxygenation in key areas of the brain, particularly the front of the brain, that is correlated or associated with a subjective feeling of fatigue, ultimately exhaustion, and stopping exercise, so voluntary, voluntary exhaustion. So music seems to extend that oxygenation curve slightly. Again, that might account for some of the ergogenic benefits. We've looked at lots of other markers through the years. Uh, we've looked at psychobiological markers such as cortisol. Mm -hmm. Cortisol is um, a stress hormone. Now, the scientific evidence for this is not definitive, but there is some emerging evidence that music has some benefit in terms of lowering levels of cortisol in the post-exercise phase. We used a, an exhaustive exercise protocol. So you can see there, there are a number of uh, objective markers that go with a wide range of psychological markers that in some instances give us an under the bonnet insight on how music is affecting the relationship between mind and body. I think all oh, that was definitely really insightful information because a lot of times through the articles we've been reading or things we've been exposed to, we've only got the subjective side of how we feel, or how we think we should feel with music. But with what you said with the measurements, with these objective standpoints, that really gives a clear cut for all the athletes or even just anybody getting into the fitness side of things to understand how that applies to our psychology when we actually do go ahead to chime this in together. Johnny, do you know what the most interesting thing is? And, and this we found out in a very recent study. We used two of these techniques simultaneously. Mm 
We used electroencephalography, mm. which is EEG, and also electromyography, which measures activity in the muscle. Uh, and we got people on a submaximal cyclogometer task while listening to music. And what we found was that the music was influencing how neuropopulations or clusters of neurons were firing in the brain. And it seemed to decrease the frequency of the firing of these clusters of neurons, but also increase the amplitude. And this we associate with being in the zone, right. functioning in flow, being on autopilot. As well as seeing this change in brain frequency, the increase in amplitude in electrical activity in the brain was associated with an increase in amplitude in terms of the messages that were reaching the muscles. And so this gives us a really good insight into how music can affect both the afferent and efferent nervous systems. So how messages are transferred from the muscles to the brain and then how the brain commands and determines muscular action. So you can see that the music is affecting us at many different levels. Yeah, really good stuff. That's superb. We've kind of touched on it in this conversation briefly, but research into the area of music post-exercise competition is, is fairly new. What's kind of your, your major findings in that area? I think the major finding is that um, one should definitely not use stimulative music for recovery. Okay. That seems to have quite a, a detrimental effect on recovery. So during recovery, either sedative music, maybe from around 90 BPM going down to 60 BPM, music with fairly soothing qualities, maybe the music of Enya or Enigma, or if you're into classical music, music from the Baroque period or some of the more laid back tunes of Craig David <laughs> could work as well. That is the order of the day for the recuperative music. The subjective measures that we've taken in terms of recuperative music, such as emotion measures, tend to provide more support for the use of recuperative music than some of the objective physiological measures. For example, hemodynamic measures, such as blood pressure, heart rate, and the biopsychological measure of cortisol that I mentioned earlier. Again, it's not such a good indicator. So there's a subjective benefit to using it. The physiological evidence is not so strong, but the physiological evidence is relatively strong in terms of not using stimulative music for recovery. So when your listeners recover, either use a fairly sedate soundtrack or don't use music at all. That's probably my my main message. One thing that I wanted to add is that uh, in 2020, we did what's called a meta-analysis. We spent about 10 years doing this study. It was done with Professor Peter Terry at the University of Southern Queensland, a former mentor of mine. We found, looking at a range of effects of music, that the effects were relatively small with the exception of its effect on emotion which was a moderate size effect. So we know across a swathe of studies, we, look, we looked at hundreds of studies actually to begin within this study, that the most reliable effects are in terms of how music regulates emotion. So if you think about athletes preparing for competition and how important their pre-competition mindset is, particularly if they're involved in short durational power sports, then uh, music as an intervention tool is certainly something that they should be looking at. Absolutely love that. Just giving you an example, Costas, the other day, I was just doing a little bit of a clean through the house and I came across one of my old iPod shuffles. The playlist I must have created like maybe five, six years ago. So luckily still worked, powered it up and listened to it before one of my, my training sessions. And the effect that had on my training that day was unbelievable. I think it just brought back images of times that I really enjoyed and just put me in a really positive mind state. I think when I created that playlist, I hadn't really thought about anything other than music that I liked, but I'd associated it with a time many years ago, which had brought me a lot of happiness. So it just put me in a really good mood and a positive mindset. And I just attacked that session and, and felt incredible, actually. You've touched on a really salient point there, Ian. 
which is that music functions as a superhighway to our long-term memories. And so the, the message here is, if an athlete has been out for a long while, maybe with injury or illness, or they've been prevented from competing because of the whole coronavirus thing, yeah. using a, a soundtrack or even individual pieces of music that remind them of a time when they were performing at their peak, when they were having good times, when they were in autopilot, when they were in flow, just using that piece of music can bring the memories flooding back and put them in an optimal state of mind to perform. So excellent example there, and everybody will be going back and looking for those old um, iPods and, and old phones or wherever people you know, stored their music 15, 20 years ago. Sorry, the question on the performance side of things, when you're using music for in-training, right? Does it come to a point where if you're using these hard workouts and having that music in tune, will there be like a reliance factor when you don't have that music, say when you're actually in the competition phase, that could be detrimental effect for you? Like any mild stimulant, there's a desensitization effect with music. Unfortunately, you can't just up the dose. I mean, of course you can up the volume, but that will have some quite detrimental effects on your inner ear and it will cause <laughs> tinnitus or temporary hearing loss over time. So my message to your listenership is use music in two sessions, but always have one session without music. And ideally, a high quality, high intensity uh, session without music, because oftentimes in competition, you cannot use music. And so having this psychological dependency can be detrimental. Yes, you can use the music before that training session, but if you don't use it during, it does sometimes strengthen the relationship between mind and body. And at the elite level in particular, it is imperative that athletes listen to their bodies. One of the earliest pieces of research that I ever did as a, as a young scholar was an interview with the legendary double Olympic medal winning decathlete, Daley Thompson. And I went to speak with him with the notion that he would ordinarily listen to music. But he told me that he never listened to music. Music was anathema to him because he was so busy listening to his own body. And that really brought things into perspective for me that um, you shouldn't necessarily use music all of the time, and it's not for everybody. Many elite athletes will have what's known as an associative attentional style. They have a tendency to focus inwardly on regulating their movements, their movement pattern, and their physiological processes. People who exercise recreationally, however, might struggle in motivational terms to do that. And you know, they will be the ones asking for the music to be cranked up because it offers a distraction that alleviates the pain and serves to help them dissociate and make the whole experience more pleasant. Interesting. I heard a really interesting comment from Matt Fraser, who's the five times CrossFit world champion. And when he's competing, they're not allowed to wear headphones, but there is live music in the arena. And he says sometimes that music is music he absolutely hates. As a tool to train for that in competition, he actually, in training, actually often, well, not often, but sometimes plays music that he really <laughs> doesn't like. I'm just really intrigued to know your thoughts on that tactic, or is there something else Matt could be doing, or has he got his, his tactic spot on there? Interestingly, that's reminded me of the time when South Africa hosted the FIFA World Cup. And the biggest complaint from European players was the shrill of the Vuvuzela. They could <laughs> yeah. literally not hear themselves think. So in my role as a psychologist, I use a range of attentional control techniques. One of those techniques is known as Mr. or Ms. Concentration, where we use extraneous noise to try to throw the concentration of an athlete in training to get them prepared mentally for what might happen in competition. Now, you're quite right to highlight that 
music that you detest can have a, a demotivational effect. But just as easily, it could be somebody in the crowd hurling abuse at you. Look at what happened to Eric Cantona when Manchester United played Crystal Palace. Somebody started hurling abuse at Cantona and he launched a Kung Fu style kick yeah. <laughs> into the crowd with hugely detrimental consequences. That, that was indicative of, of a lack of attentional control. He was unable to block that out and he, he became so emotionally embroiled in that taunt that he felt compelled to attack the fan in question. So the bottom line is that in any competitive arena, be it the British University's athletics championships, be it a national championships, be it the Tokyo Olympic Games, there will be distractions. Some of those will be auditory. Some will be visual. Maybe one of your biggest rivals trying to intimidate you. The key is to use a range of techniques in training to be able to deal with those attentional distractors. So that's pretty much part and parcel of what I do as a psychologist. So for example, when I've worked with uh, some teams in the past, I've created very high intensity soundtracks that are played over a, a stadium's PA in training to replicate the shrill of a particular collective of opposing fans. So that when the team encounter those fans and hear that abuse, they're able to effectively block it out. But you know, you can use the music very positively in those circumstances also. I've been talking with a professional US baseball team in recent weeks about the walk-up music that a batsman will use uh, as they enter the fray. And of course, that music is not only used to magnify the ego, to, to bolster the, the mental state of that particular athlete, but it also serves to unify the relationship between the crowd and the athlete. Because you hear the music, there's a classical association with that particular athlete. So there are powerful cues and powerful ways of using classical conditioning, another psychological technique, in order to strengthen these ties between music and performance in a professional sporting context. Awesome. Love it, Costas. There's a lot, a lot of good insight so far, Costas. And I guess with all the projects and, and the research you've done, I guess the one question I'm curious about, what has been your favorite? One of my most memorable studies was done with... Uh, Mr. Ian Deeth right here. <laughs> yep. It was one of the early studies. I'd long held this notion that one of the biggest benefits of music was that it induced uh, flow state. Yep. I've mentioned it already. It's this uh, state in which we're functioning on autopilot. Everything seems to go right. We have a clear sense of our goals. We're not worried about the outcome, but we're just focused in the moment. So I felt that music induced that sort of state. So Ian and I thought we'd come up with an experiment to see whether in a really brutal activity, if we played music, it would in, uh, indeed induce that optimal psychological state. So um, Ian and I had this idea of using the famous bleep test developed at Loughborough University that is... Uh, a field test of aerobic capacity, VO2 max. And essentially what we did uh, through the course of a term is that we got athletes and uh, exercise participants to complete the bleep test to exhaustion under three conditions. We had a no music control, motivational music condition, and what we called a nudeterous music condition. That was music of a motivational neutral quality. So it wasn't motivational nor demotivational. And what we found in that study, Ian and I, was that indeed the motivational music condition, even in a brutal task such as the multi-stage fitness test, elevated the perceptions of flow. And it provided us with insight into the relationship between music and optimal psychological functioning. So that was your contribution to the literature, Ian. 
It was indeed 2001. I remember it well. And the old Grinnell campus, which I think now is a, is a housing estate, right? It's an upmarking housing estate. But one thing that still gives me pleasure is that the track still exists. It's not the egg-shaped track that we <laughs> once had. I don't know yep. if you remember the Cinder egg-shaped track. I do, um, yeah. It's the three-lane track. There was this urban myth that it, it couldn't be made a, a proper shape because there were some oak trees on a parish boundary. So they, they couldn't Correct, actually yeah. cut the track because it would result in oh, wow. in cutting the trees down. But now there's actually a, a state-of-the-art tartan track that is used by the school across the road, Isleworth and Zahn, that actually your two great mentors, Paul Island and Jason Wing, used to teach at. Uh, they, they were there for a number of years. So the, the track is still in use, but the site as a whole is now a, a luxury housing estate. Yeah, and that school was home to Mo Farah as well. Yeah, Mo, Mo Farah was um, uh, an old boy at uh, Isleworth and Sion. And during his um, younger years, he used to come and join in our training sessions at Brunel. So he yeah. used to come, I don't know if you remember, but he used to come to my Monday night circuits and, and, and mental skills training. So the sprinters were next door in the weights room and then the middle distance upwards and long distance guys were in the sports hall next door. And yeah, we kind of had the backtrack of what you guys were playing, obviously the motivational music you were playing within the circuits that we could hear as we were doing our weights next door. So myself, Graham Beasley, Malcolm Lawrence, Paul Ireland, those guys were, were doing the heavy weights and then we'd see you guys. And yeah, it was an amazing, amazing atmosphere having those two sessions going on side by side, right? <laughs> I remember Mo Farah being scared when he walked past the weights room and looked through the window. Because <laughs> he was quite wily and skinny and, and yep. quite a diffident young man, yet really lovable, very talented even at that time that he was at school. And I was so delighted to see later on in his life just how much he achieved in the athletics realm. I've seen many people go from just being junior athletes or young college athletes to the highest echelons uh, of the sport. You know, people like Kelly Southerton, uh, who was one of your contemporaries who became a, a multiple uh, Olympic medal winner. And, and when you think back, yeah, when I think retrospectively, just how many athletes that campus spawned, it is amazing. Alan Pascoe, who himself was a formidable athlete, once said that Square yard for square yard, Borough Road is the greatest sports university in the world. And that's a view that I've long espoused. Yeah. Do you know how many Olympians the Brunel slash Borough Road has um, produced, Costas? I would say in the region of 30. Yep. Something, something along those lines. The first one I recall was in the London Olympics of 1948 in yeah. the 4x400 meter relay. And we've had regular representation. A peak time, actually, was when you were a student. Yeah. We had three Olympic gold medalists in the Sydney Olympics of 2000 in the form of super heavyweight boxer Audley Harrison yeah. and the rowers James Cracknell and Tim Foster, who yep. rode in the Coxless, Coxless Fours alongside Steve Redgrave. Yep. So, yeah, what a, what a great time. What a great epoch to be a part of, Ian, when, uh, yeah. when you were at Brunel. Yeah, absolutely, Costas. So I think one thing some of our listeners wants to know is of what is your number one piece of advice for anyone out there that's looking to use music to help them unlock their athletic potential? In terms of unlocking athletic potential, my key advice is that you search for a track that contains a lyrical affirmation that chimes with whatever positive self-statement you might use. So for me, as an athlete, I used to do a lot of um, hill training, particularly around Crystal Palace, and the track Ain't No Mountain High Enough did it for me from a lyrical perspective because it completely encapsulated what it was that I was looking for. So these lyrical affirmations are replete within music. You know, be it simply the best, Chris Eubank, search for the hero inside yourself, or whatever it might be. 
There are lyrical affirmations aplenty. Find a track that works for you and use it in that crucial pre-competition phase. Costas, that is yeah. incredible advice like we've had throughout this whole conversation. I'm sure there's going to be people now that want to find out more about you, keep up to date with your latest research. What's the best way for them to do that? If any of your listeners want to keep up with the research that we're doing, our research group has a Twitter account, which is at Savvy Brunel, S-A-V-I Brunel, B-R-U-N-E-L. And we post weekly the latest research findings, other people's research findings, playlists, snippets from the news. So everything that comes up internationally that is of interest to this area will be fed through our Twitter account. Things evolved after you graduated from Brunel, Ian. We developed an interest not only in auditory cues, but in visual cues as well. So we've done a lot of work on virtual reality, augmented reality, immersive video, priming, which is the use of images to to engender motivational states. So if you're interested in any of that and generally using cutting-edge techniques to enhance your athletic performance, then uh, check us out on Twitter. That's awesome. Sounds superb. Costas, we're going to put links to all of this in our show notes, including links to both of the books that you've written as well from Human Kinetics. What can I say? You know, if our listeners don't take multiple things from this episode, it's been absolutely phenomenal in terms of the content and information you've given us there, Costas, with some uh, great stories, some amazing examples along the way. And been good to to reminisce a little bit on this episode as well for some from some of the good times back in the day as well can i just say what a pleasure it's been catching up with you after 20 years ian (laughs) i knew you as as a as a a boy essentially as an athlete uh i know i supervised your dissertation I, i taught you and just to see how you've grown and flourished through the years is is a great pleasure and i wish you every success and you johnny in your musical and athletic endeavors and i will be sure to tune into your future podcasts thank you so much. we really appreciate that Costas. yeah absolute pleasure and that my friends is unlocking athletic potential we hope you've enjoyed this episode and taken something away with you to help you perfect your craft <laughs>